Um, we're, we're picking up today uh, in the book of Esther. We've been going through the story uh, for the last several weeks. And uh, to get you up to date, if you've missed a little bit, we're at a crucial point in really the survival and the history of the Jewish people. Uh, they have an enemy. His name is Haman. He is the prime minister, the grand vizier of the Persian Empire. He's an anti-Semite. He's a vainglorious man. And he cannot abide the continued existence of the Jewish people, God's people. And so he comes up with a plan after having been offended by one of the Jewish leaders, Mordecai, to murder the Jews, to commit genocide. He picks a day at the end of the year, what we might think of as something like December 31st. And on that day, he has declared that all the people of the empire will rise up in arms and slaughter their neighbors who are Jews. But what Haman does not know is that in the midst of this, meanwhile, a young Jewish girl named Esther has become the queen of the empire through what appears by all accounts to be a trick of fate. That her great beauty and winning charm have somehow gained favor, and we learned a few weeks ago even Hesed, God's faithful commitment from King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. Her position of power, however, is nothing compared to the king's. And when Mordecai has found out what is going to happen to the Jews when the announcement has gone out and he has mourned and he has fasted, he calls on Esther, who happens to be his niece and his adopted daughter, he calls on her to do something to save the people, to go before the king and to plead the case of the Jews. But there are problems. In the Persian Empire, once the king has placed his signet ring on a command, it cannot be revoked. Moreover, the king seems to have lost interest in Esther and hasn't summoned her or called her for 30 days. And even worse, when she goes before him, if she does so unsummoned, if he doesn't call her, she is under penalty of death. And as he got rid of his first wife, Vashti, he could easily have her executed. And yet, Esther plans to do it. Last week we heard Mordecai telling her, Esther, maybe you have been called for just a time as this. Just this kind of time. Maybe all of the things that have been happening in your life, your, your victory in the beauty contest, your, your winning of the king, maybe, it's, maybe somehow this has all been organized so that you can do wonderful things to save our people. Today's sermon is titled, Making the Last First. And that may bring up to your mind a saying of Jesus. You may remember, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. As we read the text and as we go through our sermon, let that sit in the back of your mind. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. If you wouldn't mind standing, let's read together Esther 5, 1 through 14. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. 
So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And, held, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the wine courses or the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do, as the king has said. You may be seated. Uh, next slide. Curiouser and curiouser. If you're, that's, that's from Alice in the, through the looking glass. Also where we came up with Alice's name, I think. I know we liked it. Uh, curiouser and curiouser. I, I have to tell you, when, when I first read this, um, and I was just trying to think through what Esther was doing, I thought, what a terrible, terrible plan she has. To, uh, to first off, I mean, I, I guess it's, uh, it's understandable that she has to go before the king and, and risk death. Um, but you'd think that once she had done that, she would have maybe had a different sort of plan. Like, first, why, uh, why bring the king, king to a banquet? Well, okay, maybe she wants to butter him up a little bit. We'll talk about that. Fair enough, fair enough. I can get with that. But, 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 why the second banquet? And surely why the second banquet? After twice, two times, the king has said, anything you want, up to half the kingdom, whatever you want. I mean, at that point, don't you just want to throttle Esther and be like, save us, save the Jews, you can do it. He just, he, he, he threw it out there for you. Easy, low-hanging fruit. Just pick it. Well, maybe she's scared. Uh, this is uh, what a lot of commentators, a lot of people think. Maybe she's scared. Maybe the, um, and, and we'll see maybe a little bit why in a second. Maybe, maybe why, uh, she is so intimidated by this circumstance that, that she's frightened and she loses her nerve or, or she's looking for a better time to, to do it. Something like that. But that brings up a second question. One of the reasons, presumably, that she's nervous when she uh, invites the king to this banquet is because Haman's there. I mean, this is, he's really the the real-life precursor to Adolf Hitler, and he's sitting at the table. And then you've got to ask yourself, Esther, why did you invite that guy to this meal? Well, let's go through the text again. Let's, let's just try, I'll highlight a few interesting points. And as we go through, I want to try and develop, try and come up with a, an explanation or an understanding of why it is that Esther's doing what she's doing. So it says, now it happened on the third day. The third day of what? Esther has been fasting. Um, as we learned last couple weeks, fasting is um, an extraordinary outpour of, of emotion and discipline to try and get God's attention so that God will do something for you. Even though the book of Esther doesn't explicitly name God or talk about Yahweh, uh, there we see over and over, we see practices and, 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 and attitudes that indicate that the Jews are faithful in some ways. 
And so Esther has gone through three days of fasting. She's had all of her friends in the city of of Susa um, do the same thing. So they've got all this prayer, all this fasting, getting us ready to go into this situation. And I've highlighted um, the words royal and king or kings up on this screen because those in Hebrew, if you're listening to the story in Hebrew, um, the word for king is melech, and the, king, and the word for royal is malkut. And so you keep hearing this refrain, malkut, melech, malkut, melech, melech, malkut. Um, it, it, it's what, it, what it's doing from, a, from an auditory standpoint. Is it's bringing up into our, into our uh, uh, imaginations the sense of majesty and importance, the serious nature of what's taking place. And we know, Esther's already told us, that we know that she could die if the king does not lower, lower the scepter. And so we are not talking about, she's, you know, jumping into the court, really excited, can't wait to see the king, she knows this thing's going to go well. No, 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 she is walking into, you know, if you're going to make it in terms of maybe Jewish religion, it would be something like approaching the holy place of the temple. It is a very weighty, weighty experience that she's going into. And while Esther doesn't know it, it's never been told to her, what she doesn't know, but what we know is that the king and everybody that she meets loves her and finds favor with her. In some ways, this is a result of her physical beauty, and the the, um, author tells us that, but it's also because she has winning ways with people. She understands how to bring out the, the most positive feelings from others. And what's interesting is we know that the king has not seen Esther in 30 days. And as, uh, as Neil, Neil pointed out, uh, that means that the king, um, and we know this from history, had a very large um, selection of women uh, with which to spend his time. And uh, since you weren't allowed to be with him unless he summoned you, that means that for 30 days the king has been with other ladies. He has been entertained by others. And Esther, rightfully, thinks that maybe he's forgotten about her. Despite her winning the contest, despite all of that, she's worried that the king uh, has found a new trinket, a new, a new toy, somebody that, that pleases him better, because she knows the kind of person he is. He's not, you know, really upstanding guy. He's a little more um, in touch with his uh, desires, I guess, and, and seeks to fulfill them. And she's worried that she no longer has it, as it were. And yet, when, we, when, when the king sees her standing at the front of the court, down the long hallway, hallway he sees her, and, and, j- and just like that, all the old feelings well up, and he finds favor, or she finds favor in his sight. Um, you could even translate that, she gets his grace. Um, this is the, what, the Hebrew word that we might translate grace. Um, the next slide. Uh, and the king held out to Esther the, old, the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. This is signifying that she's not going to be murdered, which is great. And the king said to her, What do you wish, queen, Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Uh, queen, interestingly, the fact that the, uh, the king addresses her as queen sets her above all the other women that he entertains. He's acknowledging, recognizing that she is the one who has his heart. If, insofar as Xerxes gives his heart away, she's the one who has it. These are all great signs for Esther. And then he says, up to half the kingdom, you shall have it. You may remember uh, from the gospel, we, we learned that um, at a drinking party, uh, Herod um, offers a girl up to half his kingdom. And she doesn't ask for that. She asks for the head of John the Baptist and gets it. That's how John um, dies. We also, we have some other... Um, Interesting stories about uh, Xerxes from Herodotus, uh, the Greek historian. Um, Up to half the kingdom is sort of like a polite thing that you would say. But kings were very serious when they made offers like this. 
we, uh, we have this story where um, Herod, uh, Xerxes, at one point in his adventures, uh, in his sexual adventures, falls in love with the daughter of his brother's wife. First he was in love with his brother's wife, but then he met her daughter and thought, oh, no, she's even better. So Xerxes, um, attempting to fulfill, uh, as, and as Neil pointed out last week, failing to fulfill or satisfy his sexual desires, um, encounters this girl, Aryanti, and asks her, I'll, what do you want? I'll give you anything, up to half the kingdom. And uh, Aryanti asks Xerxes for um, a cloak that was made by uh, one of his favored wives that he had been wearing around. Um, Obviously, because what she wanted to do was to wear this cloak in front of um, Xerxes' wife, other, one of his secondary wives, to show that uh, she was the favored girl. Xerxes, he's, he's just, he's he, like, no, 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 he even offers her at one point, I'll give you your own personal army, and you can seriously go, just direct them to go take over whatever cities you want, go at it, I'll give you that. She's like, nah, I want the cloak, and he gives it to her. Uh, causing major uh, familial uh, royal uh, drama that ultimately ends up with someone being executed. Um, but this guy's serious. When he says, I'm going to give you up to the half, uh, half of the kingdom, he's not playing around. Granted, if you literally said, give me half your kingdom, he'd probably be like, yeah, you're dead. But, but he, he isn't joking when he's making these kinds of claims. And so you want to just sit there and say to Esther, spit it out, girl. This is your chance. It's not going to get better than this. He's in love with you. He still wants you. He wants, he wants your favor. You don't know. Maybe this is your last shot. Take it. Take it. Why wouldn't you? Going on to verse 5. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And during the wine courses, literally the... The feast of wine, the wine time of the feast. There's basically a selection of wines on the table and nothing else. And the king and Haman are going at it. The king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What's your request? Half the kingdom it shall be done. Uh, if we know Xerxes from this story now, we know the man loves to party. And he likes to party hard. And when he's partying hard, he is very likely to do rash and impulsive things. So again, you're just shaking Esther. This is it. This is the moment. Take it. And then she does. Verse 7. Then Esther answered and said, My my petition and request is this. Verse 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, dot, 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 then... Let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I'll prepare for them, and tomorrow I'll do as the king said. Interesting uh, what Esther do- does here. Um, notice notice the, the structure of this request. If I found favor in the sight of the king, she knows she has. He, she touched the scepter, didn't get her head chopped off. She knows she has this. And if it pl- pleases the king to grant my petition, fulfill my request. Well, clearly he wants to do that. He's already said it twice. Then what does he have to do? Come to the party tomorrow. Think about the logic of this. She has now conjoined fulfilling her request with the king's assent to come to a party with her. If you come to the party, that means you're going to do whatever I ask you, right? 
The two are together. It's, they're, they're inseparable. Once the king says, all right, girl, I'm going to come. I'm, I, you've, got, you've got my interest. I've got to do this. You're, you're, you blow me away. Then he's implicitly assenting, affirming whatever it is that she wants to ask for. It's kind of a rhetorical trap when you think about it. Yes to the one means yes to the other. Even though the king doesn't know what she wants, yes to dinner and, and partying is yes to saving the Jews. And I think it's important, I think it's helpful just to bring up um, what, what it is, the, the major elements of Esther's plan. And this is in your note sheets. Uh, Jeannie took a look at my note sheet and she, she noted that it looks a lot like a, um, a resume. Right? Requires, depends on, utilizes, incorporates, rejoices, initiates, delights. These are the kinds of things that potential employers are looking for as action verbs in your life. Just a little tip there. That's not what we're going to be doing. Uh, the, Esther's plan to thwart Haman requires Xerxes' favor. Right? These, are, these are just the elements of her plan. We're going to use these elements of the plan to try and get behind what she's really up to. So it requires Xerxes' favor. And when we say favor, we really do mean something like lust. And desire, and potentially, potentially love. It not only that, it depends on his impulsivity. Impulsivity. This is not going to work if um, Xerxes is the kind of guy who steps back from the table and just sort of deliberates for a while and thinks through the consequences and then comes to a decision. That is not the kind of sort of uh, argument, if you will, manipulation, really, that Esther is putting on the king. She wants him to make a a moment decision, and she wants it to hold. It utilizes Xerxes' love of drink. Um, let's just be honest about what she's doing. She's definitely taking advantage of the, fa- of the fact that this guy has a lowered um, ability to make rash dis- uh, rational decisions when he is under the influence. And so she's taking advantage of that. And lastly, it incorporates the so-called rules of attraction. The rules of attraction. These are the rules that, that are supposedly part of human nature that, that tell us that you always want what you can't have. She's playing a game of bait and hook. Oh, king, you want to know what I want? Oh, come to dinner with me. Oh, king, you're excited to find out about what it is that I, that I, that I want for you? Come to dinner with me. And every time she does it, the king goes fall farther and farther into her trap, as it were into her attempt to get him to say and do what she wants. This is, so, this is, a, this is pretty... I mean, this is, a, this is real life stuff. Uh, this is not... You know, I, I think it's valuable to sit back for a second and realize this is a very legitimate way uh, that in history, in the past, and even today, um, in the battle between the sexes, their genders, uh, that, that women have been able to um, manipulate uh, men. However, despite what Neil thinks, this is not marriage advice. Um, Neil, Neil likes to be manipulated. Um, and, and, and men do. We do, don't we? We, we would really like, we enjoy it when, um, when we're attended to and, uh, <laughs> and made to feel, um, well, you know, yeah, I, nothing, nothing else needs to be said. Uh, uh, on that, except that uh, Neil has pointed out a number of times, and, and it, he's exactly right, in, in Esther, Esther tells us what happened, okay? It doesn't tell us what ought to happen or what should happen, okay? Th- this is not a description. You're not supposed to... <laughs> Women, you're not... 
you're not necessarily supposed to look at what Esther does and then, you know, repeat in your life. Uh, take this. And I'm, I mean, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not going to uh, make any pronouncements here or there about what is or isn't um, right in a marriage relationship um, or even just interpersonal relationships. I just want to point out the fact that this is real life, friends. You know, this, this, uh, this book is very, very intuitive and very insightful in how we relate to each other. And maybe it's marriage advice. I don't know. You, you talk to that pastor, Neil. If you have questions about marriage advice, he... I call it marriage advice? I, no, you never said that. I just, just, you know. I'm just imputing to you what I... I don't want these questions. So, that's your guy. He's... <laughs> Yeah, if you're if you're looking for marital counseling, definitely Neil at coastbible.org, I think, is the the right contact information. Um, so all this is happening, right? This is all happening, and uh, you might even in in the story you might even say, "Meanwhile, dot dot dot," and we get this. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. I mean, the great things for Haman. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me. To come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow, I am again invited by her, along with the king. Yet, all this avails me nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a shaft be made, 75 feet tall. That's, you know, eight stories. And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be impaled on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman. So he had the shaft made. Just a few uh, things about this set of texts. Notice that Mordecai has doubled down. Again, you're sitting there reading the story, and you're like, Mordecai, no! Beg for your life, man! Put your head down! It's not, look, just because you have to bow to this one guy, I mean, is, that, is it really worth all the Jews being put to, to death? For all of Mordecai knows, Esther's already dead. And yet he stands his ground. What does that tell us? It made, the man has faith. It's crazy faith. It's radical faith. It's insane. And still he goes. And when Mordecai, or when Haman is, is upset, he restrains himself. He doesn't just get the guards and take a Mordecai's head off, because he's a snake. He's not, a, uh, he's not the kind of guy who, you know, let's have a duel. It's, I'm going to fill out some bureaucratic forms, and you're going to disappear overnight. The kind of dude he is. And then Haman goes home, and how, how, how interesting is this insight into who he is? Um, he gets his wife and his friends, and he's having a, yet another party. And you can just imagine him there at the center of the table, or like at the head of the table, and just recounting, oh, how great he is. He's like, I've got all this money, I've got all these kids, and of course, you know, the people around him are all jealous, right, because they don't have what he has, and he just keeps talking about himself, and he goes on and on and on. Queen Esther, no one but me, and of course, we as the audience are laughing, like, yeah, buddy, look out. 
And tomorrow I am again invited. Hi, me, little old Haman, rose so high, so high, how high? Maybe about 75 feet into the air. And look at what that talk does um, in, in, in verses 13 and on. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I mean it, right? How often do we, you know, meet these people who they're just constantly, it's constant self-regard, constant self-promotion, constant thinking about all the things that they've achieved, all the things that they've done. And how often is it that behind all of that is just weakness and insecurity? And can you imagine you have all the stuff he's got and one guy standing up ruins your day? <sighs> um, I, 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 I highlighted shaft and 75 feet. That's just because in the New King James, you're going to get gallows. And it sounds like he's constructed this large, this large gallows. It's really not. Um, it, it's, a, it's a long, I mean, it's got, probably got a wide base, but it goes up 75 feet and has a sharp stake on the end. It's a shaft. Uh, the idea being to, to impale Mordecai. Haman's not worried about killing Mordecai. Mordecai is going to get murdered with all the rest of the Jews. What Haman wants to do is humiliate Mordecai. Uh, Haman's not necessarily just interested in taking out his enemies. What he's really interested in is humiliating them because he's the one, deep down, who's got some serious self, uh, self-regard issues. And he thinks that if he just does this next thing, this next evil act, this next self-aggrandizement, that he'll finally feel good. It's a pretty tall shaft, Haman. At this point, um, I would like us to take maybe a step back and get kind of a macro perspective on where we are in Esther and specifically how irony and reversal plays into our text. Um, so if you could bring up the, um, the next part of the slide right here. Okay, I want you to, to notice um, some things that we've already seen happen where we begin and the... The Gentiles, the Gentile, the pagan Gentile people um, are on top, right? And that's on the left side. That's how things are when we start. And then on, on the right side, notice the ironic reversal where God's special people, the Jews, are then, you know, set up above. Um, at the beginning of our story, Vashti, the queen, refuses to come when the king summons her. And she's banished from being queen because of it. As we just saw in this chapter, Esther violating all rules of protocol, comes unsummoned, and then is given whatever she likes up to half the kingdom. Xerxes commands, his, uh, commands all wives to serve and obey. This was uh, an entertaining portion of the, the first chapter, where um, Xerxes comes together with this, this you know, empire-wide decree that all wives must um, submit and serve. And if we're watching the story right now in this chapter, Esther's like, Xerxes, I want you to do this. And he's like... Okay, what else can I do? What else can I do? Whatever you want, honey. Uh, notice, just very strange. You know, the commander of the empire, you know, all, uh, virtually a god in, in their eyes, and, and this poor Jewish girl now is sort of dangling out the, um, the bacon, and he's like trying to get at it. Uh, Haman. Haman has chosen a day of death. Um, this is, he's chosen a day on which all the Jews are going to be executed. Um, as we saw a couple weeks ago, God's dice land on Passover. What I didn't point out was that after three days, when Esther has been fasting for three days, um, that day when she enters into the king's presence is literally the day of Passover. The Jews are celebrating Passover, the celebration of God's gracious victory and, and salvation of his people. 
on the very day that she invites the king and puts her plan into motion. I think if we take that step back and we look at what Esther is doing, we see that she is um, putting together a pretty cunning plot. She is um, putting the king in just the right position so that she's going to be able to get what she needs to get done, done. The reason she has Haman there is because she doesn't want to let him out of her sight. When she springs this trap, she wants the king to be loose because he's, you know, imbibed a a bunch of, of, of wine. She wants to take advantage of the fact that he makes rash decisions, that he's really, really into her right now, so he's going to jump at whatever she does. And she wants to make sure that Haman is right there, right there, so that he bears the full brunt of the king's wrath, such that he doesn't have a chance to get away and get with his advisors and come up with some explanation for this is how we're going to do things and this is we're going to sort it all out. She doesn't want any of that to happen. She wants them to be caught flat-footed right in the midst of the righteous indignation, furious wrath of the king, so that his head will come off tomorrow night. Esther is playing for high stakes here, and she is not messing around. She's leading the king almost to be trapped into a way of doing exactly what she needs him to do. And in this way, through this activity, God is going to take this small subset of his people, and he is going to, yet again, put them on top. God is going to make the last first and make the first last. And I wonder if that doesn't have some larger implications for us as we think about how God acts in the world. This is uh, God's economy. When we say God's economy, what we're talking about is the way that God does things here such that they reflect what God is actually like up there. We confess that God is a trinity, and yet somehow in being this trinity, God acts in a way that's in accordance with how he lives in himself. Think about this story. There's, um, there's a guy who, uh, who needs to move. His name's uh, Scott Eichler, and he's got to move um, from one house to another. This actually happened yesterday. Not exactly according to this story, but it's close. Um, and uh, he doesn't want to you know, bother any of his friends, so he goes down and he finds some day laborers. And he says to the day laborers, hey, guys, it's sunrise. I'm going to give you $100 for the day if you help me move um, my palatial estate from here to there. And the day laborers are excited, and he gets three or four of them. Uh, they're not moving fast enough because he's got so much stuff. And so around 9 a.m., he goes back uh, to the Home Depot, and he finds some more guys and says, guys, I'll give you $100 for a day's work if you come with me and you help me move my stuff. And they say, absolutely, we'll do it, we'll go. And then at noon, he realizes he still doesn't have enough help, so he goes, and he says, guys, uh, if, uh, to the day laborers, I'll give you 100 bucks a piece if you come and get my stuff moved today. And then again at 3 p.m., the stuff's still not moving fast enough, so he goes back and he says, guys, I need more help, 100 bucks for, for a day's work if you just come and help me out. And then at 5 p.m., one hour before sunset, one hour before the day is over, they're still behind, and so he goes back and he finds a few more guys, he says, what are you doing here? And they're like, ah, man, no one hired us. He's like, I'll hire you, 100 bucks, come get my stuff moved. 
And they finish it. At 6 p.m., all the stuff's moved uh, from one, one house to the next. And, 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 and he's de- dealing out 100 to this person, 100 to that person, 100 to this person. And he starts out with the guys that he hired first. And he gives you $100, $100, $100. And they move to the back with their, their money. And they see the guys who came in at 9 a.m. And they get 100 and they get 100 And then those guys come in at noon and 3 and 5. And everybody's getting a $100 bill. And those guys who came first, they're like, what is this? We broke our backs for you all day long. And Scott says, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't we agree on a hundred bucks? Don't I have the right to do what I want with what I own? Or are you mad because I'm generous? So it is that the last, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's one of the more offensive of Jesus' parables. Because it goes against everything that makes sense in our economy. It contradicts our notions of fairness and justice. But isn't this interesting? Isn't this interesting? All you do is you just think about that time when you were the guy who got hired at 5 p.m. And you think, man, you have been so good to me, God. And then the next day, you see somebody who gets hired at 5 p.m. You've been working all day long, and you're like, really? The Jews in this story start out as the last, and they become first. In that parable, which is from Matthew 21 to 16, really I think we're supposed to see the guys who were hired first as the Jewish people. They have been slaving away for the Lord ever since he chose them um, in Abraham. And they see more people being gathered in despite the fact that, you know, we're, we came late, and they get angry. In Esther, good upends the fortune of Gentiles. In Christ, God upends the stable notions of the Jewish people. Well, what does this tell us about God? I'll just look at just a couple of verses from the Gospel of John. And Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. I'll just go to the next slide. We'll skip a few verses. I have glorified you, Jesus says to the Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is one of the few times in Scripture where we really get to see how God is in God's self. The Father and the Son interacting despite the fact that they are somehow one. And we notice that Jesus lifts up the Father's name. And then he asks uh, God, glorify me together with you. What's so fascinating about the the, the language of glory in the Gospel of John is that almost always, when referencing Jesus, speaks of his being lifted up, as we see in John 3, and ultimately being crucified. In Jesus' glorification on the cross, the sin of the world is judged, and it's paid for once and for all. And this is God's glory. To be the one who gives radically and without remainder. Even the creation of the world. Notice, notice the glory which I had with you, God, before the world was. This self-giving glory, this, this, this pushing of goodness and glory to the other. We had it before the world was. In fact, the creation itself, the very fact that there is a universe in which you and I breathe today is an act of God's gracious self-giving. 
It comes out of God's surplus of joy. This is God's economy. The actions we see in the universe come from a God who lives like this, who gives glory and receives glory eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what that looks like on earth and what we just saw in Esther are the following things. In God's economy, God's economy rejoices in the other's fortune. You see Haman who's constantly thinking about his own glory, his own achievements. And then you see Esther who's looking for the glory of her people. God's economy initiates cycles of self-giving. It's not just that we give of the self, in the, especially in the Trinity. God gives of God's, of the Father gives of the Father's self to the Son, who then, empowered by the Spirit, gives back glory to God. These are cycles, and they repeat over and over. And this is what's meant to happen in, in, the, in this world. Esther is an excellent example of cycles of self-giving that result in salvation and liberation for an entire people. When you gift yourself according to the nature and character of God, this is meant in the power of spirit to touch off further cycles, or as they said once in a movie, pay it forward. God's economy delights in generosity. Radical generosity. Not the kind of generosity we normally think about. Normally generosity is intended to get something back. I give something to you, you're in my debt. You come back to me. That is not how God's generosity works. God gives without remainder and radically free. God didn't give the son and said, well, just because I did that, I'm expecting some things for you. No, God gave the son because that's who God is. Jesus didn't come because he had to. Jesus came because God gives. You know, our economies of merit I'm this smart, or I've done this thing, and so I get this and this. These economies are the result of a broken creation and a broken nature. The very moment of Christian salvation touches off, it begins when we trust in God's unmerited gift. That is, when we do that, we are affirming that, God, you're the kind of person, you're the kind of being that right orders the world without anything that we've done. And you do it in your son. That's where salvation starts. It's not where it ends. But that is the moment where it starts. And when I say salvation starts, what I'm referring to is the process through which total salvation occurs, which will end in the future in our uh, total glorification in the new heavens and the new earth. But it begins, it begins at that moment when we can look at God and say, you are this way, and I trust you to be that way. And what a strange kind of God this is. And I wonder if your God is anything like that. Because I know that on a day-to-day basis, mine isn't. More often than not, I am caught up in the kind of... I, I think that the universe is the way that Southern Orange County tells me it is. That's get what you can, earn your keep, pull yourself up. We have that so deeply ingrained that it is inconceivable that God would find these guys at 5 p.m. and say, 100 bucks a day, just get the job done. 
And then, and then you have to ask yourself, what delights you? How awesome. What, what, does, what delights Haman? Haman's like, oh, I got all this stuff. How, 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 how rare and how, how precious it is when we are able to look at somebody who gets something that we want or, um, you know, achieves even though they probably didn't deserve it, and we can be like, man, God is good to you, and that's amazing. That was God's delight for us. Is that what you think God delights in? Is that what you delight in? Because really, that's the final question, is if God's economy looks like this, and if God is like this, then what are we like? What are we perpetuating? What kind of cycles are we initiating? What kind of rejoicing are we doing? What kind of delighting are we doing? Are we making the last first? Or do we actually kind of prefer it when the first is first? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you give the ultimate example in your son of one who glorifies you, who receives your glorification and sends it right back. God, we thank you for the example of Esther. One woman who is willing to seek the fortune of her people instead of her own, to initiate a cycle of salvation, to delight in the way that you generously save. We pray, God, that we will be participants in your economy and not Orange County's. That we will reflect your nature and not the nature of this culture. That we will make the last first. Because we who were last, you have made first. In your name we pray. Amen.